Hello and welcome to the 15th Media Curious Off Message podcast, for which I dropped into the central Dublin office of Ireland's newest business news venture, The Currency, to have the chats with the intrepid pair behind the 100% online venture. Editor Ian Kyo and Chief Executive Tom Lyons. We talked about their plans for The Currency, diversity and often the lack of it in the media, why they felt being banned from the airwaves by Communicor was such a worrying matter, and lots more. Enjoy. Ian Kyo and Tom Lyons, thank you for inviting me into your offices here in Dublin too for an off-message chat about the currency. Uh, Thecurrency.news is the website address, which says a lot, I think. What's its USP? Uh, I I think it's like its USP is that it's uh, unique content focused on business, economics and public policy. Uh, and that we probably have a tendency towards long reads. And uh, we also publish a a number of podcasts by people like Sam Smith, uh, the journalist, and Alison Kowser, who is an entrepreneur. Uh, And I think it's that, like, it's a combination of unique content uh, focused on a niche area, which is of great interest to a lot of people. What's your business model, Ian? Well, it's it's a membership service so i mean there's an awful lot of people give away their content for free and in certain circumstances in the case of rt that's perfectly acceptable and required and good for democracy uh we went in a different direction which is you know it's about subscriptions about trying to get people to pay for premium content so it's 250 euro a year 25 euro a month so we have priced it at 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 the upper end of the market but it's kind of a play on quality it's a play on that people will come in, that they'll sign up to the service and they'll enjoy the content, that they'll read what we're trying to give them. We're not trying to... I mean, the key thing, and the one thing from, from our past, one thing we didn't want to do was to try and bombard people with loads of content. You know, we're in a time-poor environment. And we were like, actually, if we give people, you know, 15, 20 pieces of genuinely high-quality content a week and they sit down and they engage with those, they feel they're getting a little bit of value. Your content is, well, it's not available elsewhere. I mean, that's your business model, I, I take it. You, like the Financial Times, charges is able to charge because what it publishes isn't available elsewhere. Your content, so I take it, is, like the Financial Times, like the FT, is specialised. A hundred percent. I mean, we wouldn't publish something which we thought was elsewhere. And we have moved away from reporting on stuff that either happened yesterday, this morning or an hour ago. And we're trying to look kind of more forward and think either about introducing interesting new ideas, trying to analyze, you know, some theme whether that's economic, financial, mm-hmm. banking, uh, and we're we're trying to produce content that is is it more of a, a deep dive where our journalists would be working on things for for days as opposed to say twenty minutes mm-hmm. or an hour or even that it might be a story that they have to cover you know they start they get it at the start of the day and they need to have it finished 
by the end of the but day, if, plus a few other things. But if you look at when you see results coming out, just say, you know, whatever day it is, just say like uh, Glonby or something puts out results, you'll see, you go into the websites of the Irish Times Independent, they have to cover it, it's part of what they do, but like they've reported on it within 20 minutes. You know, it's impossible to analyse the full data set behind those results within that period. So what we want to do is to give good journalists plenty of time to cover big topics and allow them to go. So for example, we're doing a, a mapping multinationals project at the moment, which Thomas Hubert has been working on for months and bringing all of that data together. So it's really, it's a different model. I think we were both tired of constant churn of getting journalists to produce five, six stories mm. a day. We won't be seeing the top 10 banking scandals type stories. So I take it anytime soon on the currency. It's not about clickbait. It's not about clickbait. But that's expensive journalism to make. It, it is very expensive. And uh, like that's where we're paying everybody well. Mm. Um, again, like we don't have to fund, uh, you know, a big printing press out in City West or wherever it might be. We don't have to fund all those van drivers. Uh, we don't have to fund newspaper design. We're only doing the website, whereas others have to do, are trying to do both simultaneously. Uh, so, you know, yes, it is very expensive journalism to produce, but that's like we're putting all of our money into the journalism and trying to spend as little as possible on, you know, things that we consider that like, like not necessary or not required because of it's a digital business model versus a physical business model. But if you look at the business models of newspapers, um, you know, you're probably spending 80% of your revenues on things that aren't related exclusively to content. And when we were setting this up, we wanted to invert that model and to allow all of our revenues to be going into content because as far as we're concerned, content is key. And if we can deliver good content, we believe more members will sign up and the more viable our product becomes. The journal is only online as well. So how do you differ for, from them? Well, if you like the journal is it is more reporting the day to day, uh, number one, but it does do its its own unique content. Uh, but it's trying to do it targeting a range of different interests. This is everything from celebrity gossip to the latest startup to something's happened in politics. You're more focused. We're very focused. Uh, we're focused on the area of business basically like there's got to be some sort of an angle which relates to money that's not to say it can't be entertaining or it can't be provoking but we're very focused on this one thing and uh i'd also say that like in general like uh, you know our team tend to have at least 15 years experience in journalism um that wouldn't be the case in you know all of our rivals there are of course there are senior journalists but We've kind of said we're going to put a very experienced team together who we're going to give the time and the resources to produce this deeper content. Business, of course, is both of your backgrounds. Am I right? Yeah, yeah. Both of us are business journalists. Uh, I've been, I worked in the Sunday Business Post from the age of 22, 23. Worked in Archie and back in the Business Post. Tom has worked in the Sunday Times, the Irish Independent, the Sunday Independent News Talk. But the one thing... One common thread from all of that is it has always been business. How long has the currency been going? How, how's it doing? Uh, well, it, it's going five and a half months. Uh, it's performing really strongly. Uh, the membership numbers are good. The quality of product is good. We're hitting our budgets. Uh, you know, so we're 
I think we're, we're, we're both very pleased with how things are going. And uh, we're really looking forward to the, the next couple of years because this is, it's, a, it's a membership model. So how those models build is the same way, say, a software subscription model builds like a tech company, which is that like as these subscriptions roll over and as the relationship deepens over time with the members, uh, we're able to increase our revenue, but also invest more in developing the product. You both gave up full-time jobs to start this. So why did you think there was a need for the currency? Uh, well, we felt that, you know, like if we step back, um, we, we felt that, look, we had worked for lots of different bosses. Uh, you know, Ian might have worked most of his career in the Sunday Business Post, but it went through various different owners during that time who had different approaches. And we felt that we had learned from our experience what worked, but we were seeing what was happening internationally, that there was other things happening in journalism, uh, where you were seeing you know, journalists founding their own businesses and having some success. Uh, this would be things like The Information, The Athletic, uh, Politico, that these are our companies which have kind of said, look, we are going to take what we've learned working where, where we've been and create something new that draws both upon our experience, but also what we feel uh, the readers and, and the members want. Yeah, we had, we'd been both been working in the Sunday Business Post before we, we set this up, and the Sunday Business Post is up for sale. We had a very long look at doing a management buyout oh. of that. Uh, you know, we did an awful lot of detailed analysis of cost analysis. We had gone through all of the processes, hired advisors, and we were struggling to make it work. Um, I think perhaps luckily we didn't go ahead with the purchase in the end, but we were we were struggling to make the numbers work. As you go through that process, it's very informative, mm-hmm. and you're looking and say, well, actually, what would work? Okay. What are the bits that we could do that would actually give you a long-term, future-focused business? Mm-hmm. And an awful lot of that came from going through that process. So where we are now is as a result of not going, not, not just not going ahead with that process, but an awful lot of the learnings, not just over our career, but looking at the business model around the future of media. Uh, like, like this would be, you know, when you're working in a newspaper, you're always looking to, you know, you're, you're focused on the day-to-day, producing the stories, managing the content, does it look nice, that type of thing. You're not looking at the business. When we started to look at the business, I mean, we could see, you know, the Sunday Business Post is turning over six million euros. That is great turnover, uh, but it was making one hundred and fifty thousand euros a year, and that is just too little to be able to really invest. And that was a great achievement by the entire team to get there. To get there, you like, know, and it had gone through a massive process of going through examinership under the old Thomas Crosby Holdings regime to get it back to that place. It took an awful lot of work, but you are subject to. All sorts of whims, you know, if the price of paper, if the price of paper goes up, then your margin is completely eroded and you don't have control of your costs. Well, let's look at the currency. So from a business perspective, how many people do you employ? We have seven full-time employees and we probably have a contributor base of somewhere between eight and ten. They'd be freelance? They would be freelance contractors, but they, they would very often have another job. Like they might be teaching economics or they might be doing like they're doing something else um so we wouldn't they wouldn't be full-time but they do bring you know fresh voices opinions and ideas uh 
like, like we, we realize it's not just about trying to do long form journalism it's also about trying to introduce new ideas and you know kind of stir a debate among people who are super interested in business about what's going on whether that's how multinationals pay tax whether that's the height of buildings in dublin or whatever it might be okay from that um i had a look at your website you have all your contributors up online and the one thing that struck me was that they're all white uh probably i don't know this for sure uh, from appearance probably middle class i mean that's one of the criticisms of the media worldwide that it it lacks diversity it especially lacks class diversity uh i think you don't know our team yeah like you're going on appearances but like i think you know Ian is from a very normal background all of the team are from normal backgrounds and from working class backgrounds so are we hearing the voices of the working class on the currency but it's not pitched at you know this isn't uh sip two's liberty magazine you look at business right and you say you say oh it's it's middle class or, or whatever else so the, the election comes up we took a conscious decision and we we're probably the only people to have done this by the way that we treated be it labor Sinn Féin, the stock Dems, all of the manifestos they all got the same element of rigor Stephen Kinsler, uh, who is one of our, was one of our columnists and our, you know our chief economics writer, he's an economics professor down in Newell, but again from a very working class background. But he ranked the manifestos not on the basis of you know are they business, are they economic, but on the, he gave the metrics. So you know are the costings correct, mm-hmm. are the ideas correct, and I think he put Fine Gael number one, Sinn Féin number two. Fianna Fáil number three but we give things rigour so we allow sure. people time to look at different ideas look you know I edit the business post it's always difficult to find more plurality of voices and it's particularly difficult within the space of business which you, you know you go in we go into our office um, and some of the journalists I mean Tom talked about you know everyone's got experience but we always have young people coming through as well so Coish Gadden is from Mayo joined us straight out of college. I think it's really important to have that different mm. voices from not just about demographics or class, actually, I'm way beyond that. It's about elements of age, that people have different views and different types. But the one, as I say, the one common currency, for want of a better phrase, <laughs> is that we are looking at business. We're not claiming to be out there saying, you know, we're going to tell you about the homelessness crisis, the human impact of that. And that has a place, and other organisations are doing that, but that's not our motif. Do you ever question, uh, in your analysis of business, do you accept that capitalism is the way it is? It's fine, we can do no better. Or do you ever, in your pieces, do you regularly, in your pieces, because there's a lot of token gestures that go on, do you regularly look at alternatives all the time uh like i think you know if you look at the way that we've crunched the numbers on the major multinationals in ireland mm. uh and how they're managing their tax affairs we're actually looking we're not just saying this is terrible uh and coming out with sound bites we're actually mm. looking at what is going on and trying to explain to our members exactly how the whole system works and the vast sums of money involved when it comes to judgment calls, you know, we've got very strong and opinionated columnists who disagree with each other, sometimes disagree with us. Well, that's uh, great, Tom. And that's, that's great. 
that's that's part of the, the mix. Uh, but what we what we very much said is that like we're going to get deep into stories, and I think that like if you look at you know in terms of challenging business people, I think that myself and Ian have shown that we're prepared to go all, all the way. Uh, and that we're not afraid of business people and we're not going to be intimidated by them. But equally, we will respect that people who build businesses and create jobs and all of that type of stuff, that like that has to be admired and that that risk taking uh, isn't easy. Of course, we're pro business, of course, we're pro wealth creation, but we will look at those issues with rigor. I've written extensively um, on television programs about vulture funds. You know, and I remember we came in for an awful lot of criticism over the years for saying, oh, you're, you know, you're anti-business. Actually, actually, we're not. What we're really trying to do is it's, it's how business intersects with you know, people and looking at it. You know, in itself, you, you, you raise the point about capitalism. In itself, capitalism about actual the redistribution of wealth and about having everybody having a fair opportunity in its purest form. We've set up a business. There's seven people earning decent mm. salaries from it and an awful lot more earning from it. So we have to make sure, A, they're paid, but, but B, that we can stand over the quality of the content. Because if the content doesn't work and the content isn't right, we won't be here in a couple of years' time, Pat. Speaking of it, in a, in a couple of years' time, what are your long-term plans for the currency? I mean, apart from survival, of course. Um, I mean, where would you like to take it long-term? I think if you look at the way the brand is set up, it's not the Irish currency or the currency Ireland. It's a brand which is capable of going overseas, we think. Uh, we look at some of the companies I've mentioned, how they've started, like Politico starts mm. in the States. It's now very big in Europe. You look at The Athletic, started in the States, now very big in Europe. You look at the information, started in, in San Francisco, I think, or Silicon Valley anyway. Uh, they've teamed up with Bloomberg, which is to do a bundle offer now, which is a very, you know, that's offering you the best of the world in business plus this very specific thing about the Facebooks, the Twitters, the Ubers. Uh, so we would see that like this has got international potential in time, but I wouldn't get... like One of the things you don't want to do when you're running a, a, a small business is to start saying, let's open bureaus all over the world and scattering the money around. It, that's not the way to do it. The way to do it is to prove that we can do it on a week-by-week week basis right. in this market, which we understand and we know and then think about where is next. But like I can see from the, the analytics, you know, where's our biggest market? Dublin. Where's our second biggest market? London. Uh, where's our third? Then it's Cork, you know, Cork, Limerick, Galway. Uh, and then you're moving into the States. Um, <laughs> for those who don't know the pair of you, uh, what is your actual backgrounds? Uh, Ian, how did you get into the media what was your career trajectory yeah well I'm, I'm from Enniscorthy uh, in Wexford and I did I was kind of interested in news I was interested in writing and it seemed a logical thing I was actually just joking with the guys earlier that uh, I remember my first day in DCU where I did journalism I actually went to UCD uh, so I actually literally turned up at the, at the wrong place anyway uh, I did journalism in there then I went on to the masters in international relations and as part of that, I actually did a work placement in the Business Post. Okay. And I got a job there, uh, probably about 2002, 2003. Stayed there for seven or eight years. Then I went off to work for Primetime uh, in RTE, which was a great two years. Really enjoyed it. It was the height of the crisis. 
And then after that, I went back and took over as editor of the Business Post and did that for four years. And Tom worked with me uh, during that period as kind of a, a double team. I was the editor, Tom was the deputy editor, but responsibilities divided. Uh, so that's, it's a very straightforward journey. And then having gone through that, then we said, actually, we really could do... When the Business Post was being sold, um, when we decided not to go ahead with, with, with the management buyout, with the proposal, it would have been very easy for us to either stay there or to go off and work somewhere else, you know, just take a job. But I think we both felt passionate that there was a real opportunity to build something. And we could take all of those learnings that we had amassed. I mean, the business post, when I was editor, had been owned by Key Capital, a corporate finance house headed by Connor Killeen. And like I learned, I think so did Tom, tremendous amounts. It was like a crash course, a crash course in an MBA when you're dealing with a private equity owned business. Um, and they were very decent around editorial. They didn't interfere at all on that, but they were very conscious of everything in relation to money. Um, it would have been easy, as I say, for us to go off and just take a job and push out stories and take a salary, but I think we really felt passionate about trying to build something. And the market was in such a place, to be honest, where I feel you need people trying to s establish new models, because otherwise you're just going to see a race to the bottom titles will pull out we'll see I think we'll see a consolidation within the print um, and I just think you need you know more plurality of voices and we're one part of that it's not the answer but it's one part of it Tom you started out where uh, well I I started out in the Irish Independent uh, the reason I ended up in the business desk was there was a desk free there uh, at the time and the guy said oh uh, a guy called Paul Dunn, very nice guy. Uh, he just said, you know, oh, you, are you in this week? Sit over there and we'll think of something to do with you. And I sat there for the first week without the phone ringing. People being very nice to me, but not quite knowing why I was there. I, I was doing the wor a work placement okay. after doing a master's in DCU. So I ended up, that's how I ended up in business, was just sit over there and we'll try and move you around the place and give you a chance in news and sport and everything. I had heard on the grapevine that what they do is they move you around and the final stop is out the door. Uh, so I figured, I'm here, I've got a phone, I've got a computer, i got to make this work. And thankfully, the place was so busy, uh, and my bosses, Richard Curran and, and Dave, David Murphy, that they didn't know my placement had ended. Yeah. And the <laughs> 12 weeks turned into maybe six months. Then Richard Curran spotted it in the run-up to Christmas, said, look, I can't fire you, you know, Christmas Eve, basically. He said, but I'm going to have to look at this in the new year. You may have to freelance. And I said to him, uh, well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to Mexico. And there was a trade mission to Mexico. And I knew that there were no business journalists on the trip. It was all political journalists. And I knew that there, I, I figured I'll go out there, see, can I get some stories and try and make an impression back home. And uh, thankfully, I did get some very good stories out there and scooped the political guys because they were all chasing... Bertie and Celia around who were touring the art galleries whereas I was trying to chase the guys trying to make a hustle or make money either in Latin America or Mexico and uh, that got my feet under the door and when I came back Richard said look we still can't offer you a contract but I've nobody to put in that desk they won't give me budget for it I can continue to divert a small amount of my freelance income towards you and that really let me get through that vital first couple of years in the independent um which that's the really hard bit in journalism is just sticking at it for the first two to three years. 
because you're you have to learn so much you're learning how to write you're learning how to work out how to, how to get stories all that type of stuff building up your contact base I really enjoyed it uh, working for the then editor Vinnie Doyle and then as Ian said earlier like I then started this long move around lots of different places like News Talk the Sunday Times the Irish Times the Sunday Independent and like I, I learned different things from each one of them enjoyed each of them in different ways and uh, probably towards you know if there's two formative things in terms of the currency one was seeing the independent news and media when Leslie Buckley was the chair and the direction this crazy digital first give it away chasing clicks type model which thankfully INM has moved is moving completely away from but seeing that and I thought that was absolutely crazy but we didn't know no, I mean no one in the business knew they were all just trying new stuff seeing what would work uh, well that isn't true like oh. I, I know that Anne Harris and the Sunday Independent said this is crazy Why okay some you? people were saying it was crazy but no one knew for sure well we knew for sure the Sunday Independent was selling a lot of copies and making a lot of money so why would we give it away yeah. this that great content okay, away for okay. free like it wasn't rocket science to work that out but I do agree with you Pat. like people needed to experiment we're still experimenting and we're still experimenting but that was definitely from a, a business model point of view I learned a lot and then working with Ian it was more around understanding this niche because like here I was in a paper where it wasn't business sport you were competing against the different branches you're actually sort of mainly business I learned more about editorial and management and all that type of stuff you guys have a reputation for scoops um, I mean I look around the office here and there's a poster for a front page that the Fitzpatrick tapes um, what's been the highlight of your careers the scoops or is it something more long-term you know working within an organization I, I don't know. I think it's easy to look and say, oh, there's a story. So, you know, it's like myself and Cliff Taylor wrote the Apple tax story in relation to the secret deal, and that changed a lot. But I actually think the one thing that I'm proudest of, and it's not just within business, but is that you can actually implement change. Uh, you know, we did that stuff in the business post, not just myself and Tom, but Jack Horgan Jones, and we did an awful lot of work around vulture funds and Section 110 companies, and that lay, led to three pieces of legislation being changed. Uh, early on, I did stuff around, you know, foster care, which led to legislation being changed. That you can actually, if you get the right story and you pursue it in the right way, you can actually implement change. I don't call it campaigning journalism. I don't like that phrase. I don't like the idea of that, of starting out with something. But if you can shine a light on something that you believe is an issue, that you can actually implement real change that can implement real people. We did a story, um, we published a story when we were in the Business Post uh, about you know vulture funds trying to evict a load of people out in Turlstown. And you know within a couple of months, the law had been changed and those people remained in their houses. Like, you know, you can make a difference. You know, it's easy to look, and, and this is why I get so frustrated when I see journalists coming in and just publishing eight or nine, ten stories a day by rote, that if you really value the profession, and it is a profession, that if you really value it, you can actually do real service and do real good work. But also, you know, you have to understand as well, it's, it's not just the public interest, and journalists talk about that all the time. It's also what the public find interesting. You know, when we were in the business post, one of the things we tried to do was to give a voice for young companies coming through. 
uh, and to give them a platform. And sometimes that's all they really need is the chance to go out and say, here's where we are, here's what we're doing, and to give them that sort of exposure. So one of the things I'm proudest about is during the time in the Business Post, we published about seven or eight Hot 100 startup magazines, which gave exposure to you know five, 600 companies. And that's great calling card for those. It's not just, you know, Tom's done amazing stuff around the banks, you know, and Anglo and, and lots of other issues. But you can actually do really good service by giving exposure to companies and the next generation of companies coming through. Tom, your highlights? Uh, well, I don't think, it, like, it's it's not the individual scoops. I, I think it's the, the interactions with human beings mm-hmm. and seeing the humanity behind things. Uh, like, for example, I would have written a lot of stories about Sean Quinn, which were very negative and, you know, rightfully so. Uh, but equally, I could see at times, you know, in the court cases, I remember, you know, just before he was sent to prison for contempt of court, you know, seeing him uh, and it was v- seeing him with his family having a pint and chips underneath the four courts and thinking, you know, this is a very human story. You do forget that this guy is a father, he's a proud man. Uh, and seeing that in the crash, I think that like, like that would be a big lesson for me is to recognize that you're dealing with another human being. That's not to say that what they did was right or wrong, but just to recognize that fact and that they are, you know, they're products of their circumstances and that you weren't in the seat when they did what they did. And even people like, you know, David Drum, I interviewed him when he was in prison in the States. And I do remember thinking, I can actually see it from his perspective. Now the time has gone by and now we realize actually Anglo was bad, but so were the rest of them. You know, David Drum was not a good CEO, but so were they all. So I think that's the humanity would be one thing. And then two, just trying to like... It's sometimes in, in, in Irish journalism, there's been times where, I, like, I remember one guy saying to me, you know, you need to pick which side you're on, meaning which uh, billionaire or former billionaire side you were on. And I, I said to him, you know, I'm not on, I'm picking a side. Like, my side is the readers. Uh, I don't really care about either of them, and I'll treat them both equally well or equally badly, <laughs> depending on how I, how, what the story merits. And... Like, I think those are challenges that you face in journalism, hopefully less so going forward. But there was certainly a a strange period of time in journalism where you saw these sort of, you know, ethical conundrums you shouldn't have to even be thinking about. Your own personal media consumption, has that changed over the years? One of the, the highlights, one of the great things, perhaps the best thing about being a journalist is reading papers and reading news is considered work. So you get to come in and read all of the papers. And I read... I love coming in, I love reading the sports section, uh, the business section, I love reading the tabloids, you know, I can, I know what's going on in all of the soaps. Do you do it online or do you read in print? It's, it's, it's actually a mix and I've seen a little bit change since when I was in the Business Post when I came in, all the papers were left on my desk and yeah. it was great, you get to read them all. Uh, I still buy a lot of papers, but I, I, I can, you know, the Irish Times is a brilliant online product brilliant online product and really an RT is actually really good uh, of an online product you can follow all those things but I it, yeah, I still buy the Sunday Business Post I buy the Sunday Times radio television a lot of a lot of news television uh, and then a bit of radio and a lot kind of a lot of podcasts I mean I think I think it's if you look at, I think if you look at the trends 
people want to, and this is the big thing, focused on a lot of our thought, people want to consume when they want to consume. They don't want to be said, oh, you have to listen to it now. So it's just an awful lot of podcasts, things that interest me, an awful lot of long-form journalism. The one thing I, I need to get back to, and I think it's probably coming from the job and, and, and everything else and from having young kids, is I don't read as many books as I would like to, but it's yeah. something I really want to remedy going forward. Tom? I, I think one of the big changes, like working for the currency, like when before I read everything, all the papers, uh, you know, I would buy six newspapers on a Sunday. I probably buy three to four now. So it's not, it's not like I'm walking away from them, but I'd also read all the dailies. I'd be watching everything for angles, movement forward, something that you could build up and in turn into you know, it might be a hundred word article and you're thinking that could be a 400 word article mm. very easily yeah. if we turn it around this way. So you're saying your new business has, has changed your media consumption. New business and children, I would say, being the two big changes. Yeah. Yeah. Like, Children's opinion. Uh, I'm back reading way more books than I was than in the first year of my child's life where I'd be looking at the Kindle maybe in the dead of night trying to heat up a bottle. Now I'm, I'm reading more books uh, and I am looking, because you're trying to research and write deeper articles, I'm looking probably more overseas. Uh, like I'm looking at the Wired, I'm looking at what The Economist is saying, I'm looking at the FT in the Saturday. More, not for, I'm looking for something I can follow up, more looking at well how are they approaching things how are they structuring an article, they structuring an article? have they got is that framed how they framed it or how they've taken something we know and repositioned it and it's come across completely differently so probably looking i've got a bit more time to look further out than every single detail but you don't read the daily news to the same degree uh, it's more the analysis that goes with the new business you, can, you still think about it is you can go you still flick through everything mm. you have to know what's going on but in terms of going through it with a fine two comb to make sure you haven't been scooped on something no what about current media issues everyone's gone on about truth and trust in the media do you have to deal with that here i'm assuming you don't because of the nature of the business and its focus. Yeah, well, no, I mean, we, we've been quite clear about what our values are. Yeah. On a website, it's all about that. But like, what we've been trying to do for years is to you know, manage ourselves and our products with integrity. And I think if you can do that, that's at the core of everything. Uh, but the, the industry is really changing, and you can see it and the movement and the capacity for failure. Are you worried about it? Are you excited by it? Both. I'm, I'm both troubled and I'm excited. There is so much possibility for setting up new ventures and the barriers to entry have been reduced so much, but that's a good and a bad thing. It allows you to start something, but it also means people can set something up without having the sort of rigor or the integrity behind it. And we haven't seen it as much in Ireland. There's a couple of exceptions. We haven't seen it as much here, but you've certainly seen it in Britain and the United States. Yeah. I think that's why, you know, that's why places like RTE are so important. Um, places like the Irish Times where you have that sort of respected voice. I'm, I'm somewhat conflicted on the RTE thing. I, I used to work there. I'm also the deputy chair of the board of RTE. So I see it from that sense and I see all the, the hard work, but also the value that RTE brings. I, I make the point, people say, you know what, you're a subscription service, it's expensive, you're elitist. And I say, that's fine. It's fine when you can do that and have that in a country where you also have an RTE, which is dedicating significant resources to news and current affairs 
we can only exist because of places like RTE. If everything was behind a paywall, that's not good for democracy. But by allowing a strong and vibrant public service media to exist allows places like ourselves to spring. Uh, and what, uh, what worries you, what interests you, what excites you, Tom, about the way the media is developing? Uh, well, look, I think it is very, like, it's it's very exciting for us, like, because, you know, we're launching our own business, we're doing it our own way. Uh, but in general, when you look out there, you'd like to see RTE remaining strong. I think it's a very important part of our democracy. Uh, equally, I would say the same of independent news and media, Irish Times, the Journal Group, that there needs to be a diversity of voices. And one of the things that kind of concerns me a little bit is that you do see people starting to attack what they call mainstream media. And these are people who are posting on websites which are controlled by multi-multi-billionaires and who don't have to worry about regulators, libel, people, you know, coming over to their desk and saying, are you crackers saying this or that or the other? Uh, you take our experience here. So when we set up this business and we were in an office down the road and on day one when we launched, we got banned. All of our journalists and myself and Tom got banned from going on Communicore stations. Uh, and what was really concerning, it's since been, they've since said, oh, it's gone or whatever. Who knows where it is at the moment to be an eye or looking into it. But it was the very first time that a radio group or a media group in this country had implemented commercial censorship. You know, you know, journalists from the Irish Times were being banned because they had a, an argument. This was on the basis that they didn't want to give any oxygen to what they described as a competitor platform. Now, that's a sad and appalling vista that commercial censorship is a stated policy of a media group in Do you think country. that had anything got to do with anything you may have written about its owner, Dennis O'Brien? Well, we can all have our suspicions, but they say that we are a competing platform, a very high-end, behind-the-paywall, mm. mainly print product is competing with Kira Kelly in the afternoon or Shouty Ivan on the way home, covering a multitude of topics. I mean, they're far more diverse set of topics, everything from lifestyle to your health and we're a competing platform i would i would prefer i would prefer it if it was as a result of something we had written before because i could understand that right but the stated reason of commercial censorship is far more troubling and raises massive governance questions about the decisions that have been taken on a day-to-day basis that if that's deemed acceptable at a very high level to send an instruction to say and it's not just myself and Tom, you're excluding voices like Francesca Cummins or Thomas Hubert or Stephen Kinsella. You're saying that they don't have a role to play you know, in public debate. And that's just wrong. Now, we got an email, I think, didn't we? We got an email saying, oh, we'd been told the ban has now been lifted. And I think the phrase was, producers and researchers from Communicore have been told they can engage with us as required if requested. Uh, but we, we chatted it with the team with the columnists, and we said, look, I don't feel comfortable. We went back and said, why were we banned, and has the ban been lifted against the Irish Times? And we couldn't get answers on either, so we just said, actually, not for us. Pat Kenny has said the issue is sorted, uh, as he says. Uh, we don't 
believe it is. We think that this is something that the BAI, the Broadcasting Authority, should make a decision on, which is, has the Broadcasting Act been breached or not? Like, we've been told the ban is lifted. It could be reimposed at any moment. And because we don't know the reasons behind it, what if we step over the line I, by always, doing always, something? I remember giving a speech, actually, uh, shortly after we had launched, and someone said, what do you think will happen in relation to the Communicore ban? And I said, what will happen is, they'll just say it's lifted. I'll get invited on to go on some show at four or five o'clock in the morning. I'll say no, and that'll be it. We'll never hear from them again. So it'll go from a stated policy to just an unofficial policy. And I remember within two and a half minutes of getting an email from Communicore to say that it had been lifted, I got another email to say, would you like to go on the radio at six o'clock the next morning? It is what it is. I'm big and bold enough, as is Tom, to get on with it, but I think it's sad where lots of other good voices aren't given that platform. One of the things that BAI is saying is, we are the body who are able to regulate the internet. We're going to be able to take on the Mark Zuckerbergs. We're going to be the ones who make sure that, you know, you don't see inappropriate pornography or, you know, things that are bullying or this type of stuff. And you just have to say, like, you know, really, uh, given how you're unable to make a decision on this issue, which is pretty straightforward, involving a tiny startup and, you know, relative to, to Facebook, a tiny, tiny radio group, and you can't come down and make a decision one way or the other. How are you possibly going to be able to manage these companies and manage these companies not just on behalf of Ireland, but potentially on the behalf of Europe because they're headquartered here. It's, it's funny because, you know, you can have a formal ban or an informal ban. Mm. So Tom and I were informally banned from News Talk for four or five years previous to a formal ban coming in. And it wasn't for anything we wrote or said. It was we published an article uh, on a blog on the, on the Business Post website criticising, what was it, the lack of female winners of broadcasting awards. And we were told by the then station editor of Newstalk, take the article down, reprimand your journalist or your band. So we, I've been on Newstalk since. I have actually been, it's, it was sort of, sort of really comical situation, to be honest with you. I've been booked on Newstalk 33 times and cancelled 33 times. So basically, a new producer, a new researcher comes in. And so I've been booked on 33 straight times and dropped for various reasons. Like the gas tank, like I had a series of these things, but you know, you were, you're, you're booked and then you're dropped. But then the other bit is like, look, you know what's going on, but could you give us a number for such and such because Ivan or Pat really need it? And, you know, you're like, of course, you try and help a colleague who, you know, remember, Ivan and Pat are on the big books. These are people who are on very modest salaries under huge pressure. So you're trying to, you know, you're doing the right thing by mm. trying to help them. But there is a huge irony there that, like, here is a radio group that is hugely dependent on journalists in independent news and media. The journal, you know, used to be the Irish Times, used to be people like ourselves, on their goodwill and on their journalists dropping everything and going on these You're stations. a competing platform, but the journal isn't. Uh, Apparently so. Apparently okay, so. They're not here. I haven't got statements. Well, yet. I mean, I've I've requested statements, and if something comes in before the podcast is uploaded, I'll stick it in the outro at the end. Um. So, what about people starting out in journalism now? So much has changed. Like, 
do you envy them? Do you fear for them? Like, what's changed the most since you guys started out? I think it's tough. Uh, I think it's a tough industry at the moment. I am optimistic about its future, but I see the big, one of the big concerns I have is some of the quality of graduates coming out of colleges isn't what it should be. Uh, I don't know why that is. It's a conversation I've had with various people involved, and to try and improve that and to make it more fit for purpose, there's still, you know, I was talking to Stephen Kinsel about this, and we were the other day, and he was talking about economics, and he teaches economics. I mean, I mean, the fundamentals of economics haven't really changed in a couple of hundred years, but the fundamentals of journalism grand are still there but how you get that message across mm. how you engage with people is changing all the time and i think our colleges have to be more they have to recognize that more the other big thing is i think we need to try and come up with a situation whereby journalism is seen as a sustainable future that you can actually build a career in it as opposed to going somewhere else so i see on the big i get very annoyed about it is and i understand on an individual basis why people do it but people work in journalism for 10-15 years and then go off and work in public relations or take a different type of job and I just think every time it happens it's great for the person sure they're getting more money but I think it's sad for journalism that you bring people up and I think you have a phenomenal brain drain uh, within the industry I think you see it particularly actually in politics I remember talking to Pat Leahy the political editor of the Irish Times a good friend of mine I worked with him in the Business Post for many years but he was saying of his generation of political correspondents, he's the last person still writing about politics. Everyone else is gone. And we need to create, and that's what we're trying to do here, that you need to create well-paid jobs to allow people to see, well, am I going in the right direction? That, you know, it shouldn't be. I've made it as a journalist at 35, 40. Now I'm out of town. And the level of people engaged in public relations professions is at an all-time high. Uh, I spoke to, if you look at Susan Mitchell, who's a great journalist, a brilliant health journalist. I mean, there's maybe five or six full-time dedicated health journalists in the, in the national newspapers, and there's maybe three or 400 people employed in public relations in relation to hospitals and the health service. They definitely outnumber the journalists, and they're better paid, there's better career paths, there's more permanency, more opportunities to start families. And less uh, hours. Well, so arguably, but I, I do think that they do have to work. Some of them certainly have to work very hard, just as many journalists mm. have to. Like, I, I think the big issue is the same facing lots of different industries is the housing crisis and how, if you're starting out, uh, your income is so low in journalism. Uh, it's not like I'm starting as an engineer with Google next week or I'm going into you know, a high-end job in banking uh, you, you, you're starting out on a low salary and it stays that way for quite a long time. And by quite a long time, that could be five to ten years. And even then, it may not move up that much. And that, that's, that's a real issue in terms of, uh, as you were saying, Pat, about diversity of voices. Who can afford to put up with it's that? It's like internships. I mean, who can afford to work for free? Unless, you know, mummy and daddy are paying for it. Or you're at least living in Dublin. Uh, like if you are by definition, you know, if you're not living in Dublin or Cork. Now, there are regional newspapers which are doing great work and all, and all of that. But there isn't, like if you want to be with a national title, you're competing in Dublin against everyone else. And I think that that is a massive issue, which I think is 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 damaging journalism and damaging the the ability of journalists to stay as journalists because they all get to the point where they've been working really hard five or six years doing really well and they're topping out at a certain salary and then you've got the siren call of 
communications, political advisor, and all of those things. And you're at that point now where you're in your early 30s, you might be married or have a relationship or, or, be, or be single and be looking around and saying, how do I get a property together? And the reality is, you know, you can't. And of course, that ties in with something we said earlier about trust. If the hunters switch sides, leave journalism, go to politics and join the hunted, I mean, people are going to say, hang on a minute, <laughs> which, which side are you on? Who do I trust here? If you ask people, like uh, uh, the professionals, I mean, journalism ranks right down at the bottom of the list regarding trust. I don't know. I, I, I see this. It's easy to say I don't trust them. But where do people get their news from at the same yeah. time? Where are they making conscious decisions based upon? I, I'm always a bit queasy and squally about some of yeah, that yeah. trust barometers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But certainly I think that inter- people who look and say, oh, I worked in politics, meaning I can be a journalist or a political advisor. I, I have concerns. To be honest with you, I think I'd be an appalling public relations person. And I'd be an appalling political <laughs> advisor. I think they're different professions. Uh, and if I ever got into politics, I don't think I'd hire a journalist, to be honest. <laughs> like, I, I do think, like, trust, it is important. But equally, I think there's an awful lot of bluffers uh, going on about trust. And that's, you know, they're, they're in academia going on about trust. They've got some sort of fancy title going on about trust. And you're like, you know, the public are not stupid. Uh, they are able to follow stories. And equally... They like to be entertained and, you know, I read the Daily Mail app, you know, like there's some great journalists here in Dublin, but like, like I read the app and I read trash, I enjoy it, I'm consuming it. You find yourself reading a certain amount of it every week alongside, you know, you're looking at the Irish Times and the FT and these trusted brands. And then even within titles, like you'd see individual journalists, there could be one that you'd be trust, maybe because it reflects your own personal views yeah. or experiences and then others who you wouldn't trust. And but what of people who only read one, who only consume one kind of media? Let's not name names, but some is more trustworthy than others. But what if they get all their media from one source? That's yeah, but not you good. Things like Definitely. Facebook and people get, getting all of their, consuming all of their news from Facebook, that's not, that's not healthy. Uh, I remember having a conversation with my mother and my mother is on Facebook all the time. Uh, and she's like, oh, I saw this, I saw that. And I said, you know, it's not actually true. She was like, it was on the internet. And it's just, it's, but look, I think people are, I think we're, there is more awareness, there's more intelligence around it now. People are realizing that, you know, and I do think you'll come back to trusted brands with an ethos and with values uh, of what they want to do. Yeah, like that's why it's so important to have a diversity of views on where issues of, censorship of new entrants uh like that that it is surprising how the lack of seriousness that that's been taken by those who are meant to regulate our industry because like we need new entrants like if you think of you know second captains you know what a fantastic new entrant it's like wow like they are so clever great business model uh you know new content you'd be like that is a great example of something coming from nowhere and doing well if you look at the Dublin Inquirer you know very localised news uh, but doing really high quality and doing it really well and adding to the sum of human knowledge Uh, so that like that's why like I think the new entrants you know have tended to be for the better in Ireland Uh, we haven't seen a Breitbart yet that I'm aware of like I am aware of individual journalists who stream on YouTube and what have you, uh, but they're going to be in 
you know, like there's going to be people like that everywhere in the world. And the thing to do as a society is to, you know, choose to ignore them on the one hand. And if they're saying things which are inciting hatred or criminality, like it's up to society to take them on. So you're optimistic about the future of the business? Uh, I would be overall very optimistic. Ian? Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, look, I think I think the changes and the transformation that we're seeing are good. It democratizes it. And I think the industry has to catch up, to be honest. You know, so, you know, why do you bring out newspapers? Because we always brought out newspapers. I think more... I think we're probably going to see a consolidation at one level, but I think we're going to see an awful lot of new, new smaller entrants serving niche markets. On that note, an optimistic note, Tom Lyons and Ian Kyo from The Currency. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks very much. No, thank, thank you. you. Since the recording of this podcast, I got responses from both Communicore and the BAI regarding the currency Communicore ban. According to Communicore's PR people, following an internal review in December, Communicore informed all the relevant programming teams that they could re-engage with the currency's contributors and editorial staff across its stations. And Michael O'Keefe, CEO of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland, said, You are probably since aware that Communicore lifted the prohibition on the currency in early December. The Compliance Committee was satisfied with the decision to lift the prohibition and decided that no further action was required. So thanks again to Tom and to Ian for our off-message chat. If you fancy investigating previous episodes, they're all available for streaming or downloading at SoundCloud. Google and Apple Podcasts, and all the other usual suspects. You can subscribe to future Media Savvy Off-Message podcasts there, or if you sign up via the subscription form on any off-message post over at patamani.ie, you'll also get ahead-of-the-pack notices of equally riveting off-message blog posts. And, of course, you can follow and like Off Message on Twitter and Facebook at Off Message one As usual, all shares and shout-outs greatly appreciated. Till the next time, I'm Pat O'Mahony, this is Off Message, and thank you for listening. Music.